0: Hi there, everybody, Uh, delighted to welcome you to our uh, eighth uh, event in this series from the Children and Care Research Forum. and very excited to uh, welcome my colleague, Dr. Ivan Brady, who will be our speaker today. Of course, she's also joint convener with myself, Robbie Gilligan of the uh, Research Forum, but today she's wearing two hats as a organizer and uh, presenter. But before we go to the actual presentation, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, some of it connected to the fact that we're living in this online world. We're all coping in our different ways with that, I hope. Uh, but it's, it's a, a daily challenge, I think. We all, we all have to kind of go against our natural instinct in so many ways, um, dealing with technology and uh, isolation and all these things. But anyway, so just practical points for your information. First of all, uh, Ivan intends to speak for, for about 30 minutes and then we uh, would open the floor, so to speak, to um, questions and answers. Uh, so you're welcome to uh, press the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen and enter to type uh, questions you may that may occur to you along the way and we can go back to those. Uh, later on so if you if you if you want to if you you, we won't interrupt the flow at that point but we will capture your thoughts if you wish to if you wish to uh, have a question for consideration um the the third thing is that we're we're in the 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 world of social media as well and uh if you wish to tweet about what your a hearing or refl- your your thoughts or reflections on the issues raised uh, please feel f- please feel free to tweet and to use our hashtag of course hashtags are very important in the world of Twitter so hashtag children in care research to attach that to your tweet will add to its uh, to its impact so thank you for that if that is uh, your wish to to, to uh, be active on Twitter today. Uh, the next point I'd like to uh, make is to thank uh, Trinity Research and Social Sciences, who uh, who are hosting, providing us with the technical support to host this event. Uh, it's an umbrella uh, unit supporting social science research in, in in Trinity, so we're part of that within the School of Social Work and Social Policy. We're delighted to have that support, and to particularly thank our colleague mae McGrath, who's uh, gone beyond, above and beyond the call of duty in terms of providing support very, and, and a lot of kindness as well. So thank you, Maeve. Um, the other point is that if you wish to be uh, invited or uh, uh, informed of the next event, which th- there will be one, uh, we, we expect uh, a number, but certainly one after Christmas. Uh, if you send Yvonne uh, an email, uh, her email address will be on her slides. So, Ivan will be happy to uh, uh, record your name and address and ensure that you receive notice of the next event. So, I think we're almost ready to go now, in terms of that's all of the housekeeping. Uh, So, I'm very pleased to introduce my colleague, Dr. Ivan Brady. Assistant Professor of Social Work and Director of the Masters in Social Work Programme in our <laughs> School of Social Work and Social Policy here in Trinity College, Dublin. And she is going to present findings from her PhD study. The title is Exploring Educational Pathways of Care Experienced Adults. So I'm now going to hand over to Ivan in a seamless process, of- <laughs>
1: Beautiful. Thank you, Robbie. That was definitely seamless. I am going to share my screen, which also will hopefully be somewhat seamless. Um, Thanks, Robbie, for the introduction. And I should also acknowledge that Robbie was my PhD supervisor and an excellent one at that. So he also played a part in this study. Um, so hi everybody, it's really nice to be here um, and to be speaking about my PhD findings really for the first time actually since I officially um, finished my PhD so this is an exciting moment for me and a little bit daunting but I actually spoke about my PhD at the very first Children Care Research Forum which we had back in April 2017 and it was, a, it was in a real live room with real life human beings there and uh, it was really um, a lovely experience and and it was so much support at that point. So this is kind of the other, the other end of the the, the uh, towards towards the end of the line of the project, I suppose. Um so what I'm gonna do today is give you a sense of um how I did my study and some of my um key findings. And if I could just get my there we go getting my screen to move on. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the background to the study um, and why um, I chose to do what I did. I'm going to give you a very, very kind of brief introduction to this life course perspective that I took to the study I took, or used when I was doing the study. Very briefly tell you about how I did it. And I'm going to spend most of my time then talking about um, some selected findings and the implications of the study as you can probably imagine, 30 minutes doesn't feel like very long to, to talk about um, a study like this, so I've been quite selective in the information that I'm going to share. It's not to say that it's exhaustive or it's everything by any stretch, but I just I suppose I handpicked the things that I thought might be most interesting and useful for, for you guys to hear about. But if anyone wants to learn more, they're very welcome to contact me about that. Okay. So. Just to start by giving you a little bit of a background and maybe there's some diehards here who were at the first presentation I gave at the first Children and Care Research Forum. I should say it's very exciting to be on our eighth research forum, actually, um, you know, I think it was something me and Robbie were really excited about and really committed to and it's wonderful to see how it has kind of grown and evolved over the years, but also that it's sustained itself throughout kind of the COVID times as often they're referred to. So just to acknowledge that just to go back to my study. So as Robbie said, it was a um, a qualitative life course study of the educational pathways of adults who were in care as children. So I essentially gathered the the educational stories of a group of adults um, who had spent time in care and left care um, and lived in Ireland and I suppose the background to the study um, is kind of couched in a couple of specific points. So the first being that we know from you know a huge amount of general literature how important education is for promoting positive outcomes in adulthood in terms of you know well-being, mental health, employment, um, income and all, all of that kind of thing. It's very well established in the literature and yet there's also fairly substantial um literature base pointing to the low educational attainment of young people who were in out of home care. And that's particularly true if you look at educational attainment in those initial years after leaving care. So if we look at what's happening for young people who've left care around the age of 18, 19, 20, 21, up to about 23 or 24, which is where a lot of studies on this topic focus. Broadly speaking, the education attainment of young people who've been in care tends to be lower than that of people who haven't been in care and educational attainment in this context means the highest level of education achieved. I think we can all probably appreciate that education means lots of different things for lots of different people. So that's kind of in the ether of the study, I suppose, but I'm I'm specifically talking about highest level of education achieved or attained. And I started to wonder, or one thing I wondered about was, I suppose, um, you know, what about the attainment and pathways through education of an older, and inverted commas are very important using that word, but an older care-experienced uh, population. So what happens if we look beyond that age of 24, and what happens if we look at the path that has been taken through education instead of looking at education at one point in time? And that's that was essentially kind of what I was trying to do with my study was look at what happens what what happens if we consider educational outcomes attainment experiences a little bit later than we have been doing what does that do what does that mean in terms of what we know and how we understand educational experiences for people who've been in care and partnered with that was this idea that i wanted to look at some of the factors that might have influenced those educational pathways over time so these two points Uh, were the core aims of my my PhD study, so to explore the educational pathways of adults who spent time in out-of-home care and also then to examine some of those factors that influence these pathways over time. Obviously not looking at every single factor that could have influenced, but really I zoned in on a couple of specific factors when I was doing my analysis of my data. Just a little point on the Irish context and I'm sure most, if not all, people here will probably be um, attuned to, to some of these points, but just to note that there is a very limited amount of data available on the educational outcomes of children in care and young people and adults who've been in care in Ireland. Um, and. I also just wanted to draw everyone's attention to this point around aftercare provision because it's something I'm going to come back to when I talk about the implications of the study. So, as some of you may be aware, um, the the provision of aftercare can be extended up to the age of 23 if a young person is in full-time education or accredited training. And I'm going to maybe um, dig into that a little bit or or point out some other ways of thinking about that um, after I've presented some of the findings of my study. So, you've that to look forward to I just wanted to mention the life course perspective, which was kind of the the framework that I, I applied to my study. Um and I think has a lot of merit when we're talking about education and educational pathways and um you know the idea of lifelong learning um and that kind of thing because it's a framework, it's an interdisciplinary framework, first of all, but it also explores human lives and development from birth until death. So not just focusing on those early years, those adolescent years, but really looking at the, the, the entire life course and development across that whole period um, or a whole, a person's whole life and something that really I think is really critical to to hold on to when we're talking about a topic like this is something that's central to the life course perspective so that idea that human development sorry human development um, the course of a person's development sorry offers opportunities for growth development and change on an ongoing basis so it's not that opportunities to grow and develop and change end at a certain point they're always there and they um, can be found and can be nurtured and I think that's a really uh, central point when you're talking about education in general um, and returning to education but also um, when we're talking about that in the context of someone, people who have uh, care experience as well. Two last points there that the life course perspective does consider and pays you know due attention to the relationship between earlier experiences in terms of childhood and adolescence, and how those relate to later experiences in adulthood. So looking at those those things that may play out over time. And it identifies the long term role that those experiences can play in influencing path- pathways and not necessarily in a deterministic sense, but just gives us a framework for considering and maybe un- unpicking and unpacking some of the ways that earlier experiences can and often do um, impact on our uh, later lives in various ways. Okay. Just to give you a sense then of how I did my study before I tell you a bit about the people I spoke to and, and what I found. So use that life course perspective. I I did educational life history interviews with people. So I essentially asked people to tell me about their educational story from their earliest memory up to present day. And I always feel like that's an interesting thing for anyone to think about, you know, where are you now and how did you get there is essentially uh, what I was asking specifically in the context of education. Um, and you know I I would have asked some follow-up questions as well and you know had a bit of a conversation about various things that were mentioned but that was the starting point for the interviews. I spoke to 18 care experienced adults um, who were aged between 24 and 36 um, who would generally speaking spent at least two years in care and something that I really wanted to do was talk to people who had had very different experiences in terms of education and that was I I did that to a certain extent um, and there were certain perspectives that I wasn't able to to include in the study and that's um, definitely a limitation of the study but um, I I was able to you know include the stories of people who had left school early, who'd gone back to education, who had been out of education for a long time and people who had left school and hadn't gone into further or higher education but interestingly had had plans to. So I did my best to seek different educational uh, stories and was successful in that venture to some degree, but not entirely. So, for example, I didn't, I wasn't able to hear from anybody who had left school early and had never gone back to education and, and had no interest in returning to education, which is possibly because of the nature of the study, you know, if I'm asking somebody about education or if I am seem to be wanting to hear about education, maybe people might not feel that they have much of a story to tell. So, there's lots of things to unpack there from a methods perspective, but that is not for today. Don't worry, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But, To tell you a little bit about the 18 people that um, so generously gave of their time and their stories to be a part of this study. Um, as I said, there was 18 people altogether 11 women and seven men 10 participants were in the age group 24 to 29 and eight were aged 30 to 36. And they were from all over Ireland Um, kind of it's mad now to think that I was driving all over Ireland to do interviews, but I was and it was so glorious and so lovely and I did not appreciate how amazing it was to leave your county and not, you know, be worried about many different things so that was really lovely and you know I I met people in all kinds of places and had conversations in lots of different contexts and it was it was a really lovely experience It was probably my favorite part of the the research process was speaking to the people who shared their stories. Interestingly the number of placements people had had and this may not come as a surprise to many of you some people had had one placement some people had had 21 placements and some people had had 21 placements and more and, and weren't able to give a definitive number is obviously a notable point in and of itself so there's a big big range there in terms of the number of placements and in terms of the type of placement that people had been in and um, six people had been only in foster care six had been only in residential care it's kind of a funny way that it split up so beautifully so symmetrically for me there but then six people had been in a mixture of foster care and residential care and some people had also spent time in um secure services, secure units, and uh, a couple of people had spent time in hostels and hotels as well as that. So that's why I have that little plus sign, mixture of both plus, um, indicating the, the, the other other contexts that people ended up uh, staying in when they were in care. And there was a big range as well in terms of the age when people left school from the youngest at 14 up to, 18, up to 19. I think it was about five people had left school early, but the other 13 had left school. Um, after their leaving search, so just in terms of the at the point of interview, so I did my interviews between uh, 2017 and 2018. I hope I have those years right. I'm pretty sure I do. I started recruiting in March, um, and I did about 18 months of recruiting and interviewing. Um, so seven of the people I spoke to had. Master's degrees, one person had a higher diploma, six had undergraduate degrees, one had a diploma, two had done post-leaving cert courses, and one had done um the leaving certificate. So a range there in terms of the various pieces of education people had completed. And interestingly, pretty much everyone I spoke to had plans to go on and, and do more, except for the people who had done masters. There was a couple who wanted to go on and pursue further um education beyond masters. But of all the people I spoke to, they, they were very keen to pursue further education and and education was very much a feature of their lives, which maybe we can discuss at the end of the presentation. So I'm gonna move on now to start talking about my findings. So this is not, um, as I said, it's very hard to, as I'm sure you can imagine, 18 stories lends itself to being, you know, hugely rich, detailed, complex, um, data to to then go and analyze and there was so much in the data. Um, and I reported things beyond what you're seeing here in my final thesis, but these are the things that I thought were particularly important for, for today to, to share with you guys in, for, for this presentation. And I'm going to talk a little in a little bit of detail about each of those. Okay, so the first finding there being this point that we should expect to see diversity in the educational pathways of people with care experience and I'll speak to why that was a finding in a moment. Then we'll look at how the connections with key people can play a central role in influencing educational pathways and can be seen throughout a person's life, okay? And bearing in mind that the people I spoke to weren't weren't old in, in, you know, the age of 36 is not not old, it's it's old, I suppose. But um, even up to that point, there was many different influences and um, factors shaping people's pathways in terms of the role of other people. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about how this idea of disruption or developmental wobbles in educational progress may be the norm for for people with care experience, as it so often is for people without care experience. And I'll talk about that a little bit as well. And then just finally zoning in on this fact that there is this ongoing potential for new beginnings and opportunities in education, which I think is really apparent um, in in my data. Uh, So without further ado, to tell you a little bit about this point around the fact that I think we should expect to see diversity in educational pathways of people with care experience. So when I analyze the data, I, if anyone re- is really keen to know how I analyze the data, please let me know, but I'm not gonna um, go into that now. I think the findings are probably more, more interesting uh, at this point, but I was able to see broadly speaking. Now, obviously, you know com- compartmentalizing um, lives and stories is tricky, but when I looked at, at the, the various pathways that everyone I spoke to had taken and I broke them down and I tried to group them in a sense, I, f- I spotted these four pathways. So this typical pathway, the typical pathway plus and short-term and long-term disrupted pathway. And I have those last two in bold because most people I spoke to followed those uh, two pathways or had, had taken those two pathways. So just to give you a sense of what each of them looked like. So this typical pathway, um, and there were three people who um, fell under this category. So you have, you know, it's fairly typical pathway, I suppose, or an expected pathway in many ways. I think wonder, it's not necessarily as as typical as we think, but moving from primary school into secondary school and into higher education. And that was the experience of three people that I spoke to. And then for another three people, um, they had taken this typical pathway plus. So the plus being this extra year that you'll see there um, in the form of further education course. So people that I spoke to had gone to primary school and then secondary school and then immediately after secondary school had done a one-year further education course and then gone straight into um, higher education and for the three of those people if I remember correctly um, they hadn't been particularly pleased with their Leaving Cert results so they had done this further education course as a kind of bridging exercise to then move into um, the various higher education courses that they wanted to pursue. So then, so, so it was three people in the first group, three people in the next group, and six people in this group, and six people in the sec- the fourth group. So that's twelve people altogether had this short-term or long-term disruptive pathway. So in this group, um there was primary school and then secondary school with some early school leavers in this group as well, and then a short period out of education for various reasons. Okay. So Homelessness, addiction, people working, people parenting for for their own children, and also uh, sometimes caring for for relatives um, and parents. Often, I should note that the first two boxes I focused very much on what happened for people when they left school and were trying to pursue, or or, or what happened around their pursuit of further and higher education, just because primary school is a kind of neat little box. It doesn't mean it was always a straightforward experience. It's just not the thing that I'm zoning in on here. So this short period out of education ranged from months to about three years um, for people in this group. Okay. And then in the final group, um, you had these long-term disruptive pathways where um, there was a Period in primary school, secondary school, and some early school leavers. And then in a, a period of an extended period away from education um, for various reasons again. And, and in a couple of instances, people were planning to return to education and hadn't hadn't done that yet, but it was on the cards. But that this extended time away was spent doing various different things in various different roles, um, having various different life experiences. Um, and as I said, it ranged from, or maybe I didn't say, this extended period was about four to ten years. And in in one instance, it was it was an ongoing uh, period away from education with a planned return. So what I think This information tells us, and I'm always interested to hear what other people have to say about these things. Um, But I would suggest that this gives us a more complete picture of the potential routes into and through further higher education. You know, that idea that, yes, some people take this fairly typical pathway, but a lot of people have an alternative pathway. And uh, different things happen in our lives and in their lives. And then they come back, get back on the education bus, as Robbie would say, um, a little bit later when they're ready. Okay, and I think it's really, really important to note the key role that further education played in the stories of uh, so many of the people I spoke to. And that's something that's, there's a little bit written about that in the literature, but I think it's really, really apparent how important that was as a bridging uh, exercise um, and as a way of getting back into education for a lot of people that I spoke to. I think we also see the impact of the various roles that that. that adult life brings in terms of being a parent, being a carer, being an employee, working, being a student, and sometimes holding those roles at the same time. You know, if you're a parent and you go back into education, you probably don't stop being a parent. You know, that's that's very much there and how those, um, those roles interact and maybe complement each other sometimes, but also might make the experience um, a bit more tricky, you know, at various junctures. And then the presence of transitions across all of those stories. So moving from maybe leaving school early to working, to being a parent, to getting back into education and kind of acknowledging that the, the complexity of those transitions, that they were sometimes off time or out of sequence with what we might expect. You know, that's a point that could be kind of pulled apart, I think, in some ways, but that there was multiple transitions present for a lot of the people that I spoke to. is really important. And I think ultimately... These pathways suggest that um, we could really do with thinking about education and care in a more flexible way. I would suggest, and this idea of outcomes and educational outcomes, where they're measured at one point in time, doesn't really give us a great sense of of where people could go. And I think for a lot of the people that I spoke to, if we had have looked at their educational outcome at, at maybe you know four or five years before I I spoke to them, it would have been a very different story. And it kind of really points to the value of taking that longer term perspective and having that look back over where people have been and how how far they've come. So just moving on then to the second kind of big finding I suppose and this one's very much about the role of other people in influencing um, educational pathways and the fact that that can be seen throughout a person's life and I'm sure everybody here has got somebody or some people that they can think of that were really Uh, you know, key and pivotal in terms of their own education, be it for good or bad, I suppose, Um, and and I suspect that those people may be present at different points in our lives and it's no different for the people that I spoke to as well. So the four big points under this finding are the idea that opportunities for educational support are present across a person's life course. The idea that family, and I'll unpack that in a moment, is a central source of educational support and really uh, I think a really interesting and important point in this, from, from this study was this idea of intergenerational capacity for educational support and the idea that relationships outside of the family are supportive of education. So just to zone in on the first one of those a little bit, um, if you look at this image, you can see the various people who are coming up as being particularly important in the educational uh, journeys of the people that I spoke to. So in childhood and adolescence, there may be, it's not that surprising, I suppose, that maybe, you know, for a lot of people, actually birth family was quite supportive. That wasn't always the case, but it was for for many people, carers, teachers, friends, professionals in in school, as well as teachers, which I thought was really interesting and really, really, um, really important to acknowledge. And then as you move into early adulthood, and adulthood more generally you see the role of you know lecturers people, spouses becoming very very influential lecture sorry lecturers i have already said but work colleagues as well um, were were mentioned a fair bit by various people that I spoke to and I think that's really noteworthy as well you know and looking and kind of speaks to the fact that these um opportunities for support are present across the lifespan across the life course. The idea of family being a central source of educational support and I have family inverted commas. I think family means different things to everybody um but particularly I suppose for the people that I spoke to um for some people family was birth family for some people family was foster cares and foster family and for 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 some people it was residential care staff so very individual perspectives on that which I think need to be um honoured obviously And just a couple of things that people had to say, which I think really illustrate this point very nicely. So Amy, who was 25, said, I always felt that support from them, her foster cares, which was so vital. And they always told me that I was so smart and I could do this. Such a kind of profound message that I think many of us are very fortunate to receive. But I think it was really Amy just articulated really well. And you could see how that message stayed with her over time over the course of the conversation that I had with her. And then Emily noting that the staff were always like, Emily, whatever you want to do, you can do it. It doesn't matter if it's hard. You'll get there. You'll do it. And that always stuck in my head. I was like, do you know what? I can do what I want to do. And Emily spoke so highly of the, the staff in the residential um, home that she had lived in, like incredibly highly of them. This point around intergenerational capacity for educational support, I think um, bears teasing out a little bit. So there was two layers to that. So The influence of people's own parents so very often birth family for some of the people that I spoke to. And then also, on the other side of that the influence of actually becoming a parent and being a parent. So for Stephen um, he spoke really really beautifully about his his mom. She always had a strong value system and belief in education. I think it's from her own upbringing as well. And she always wanted us to do well in it. She always pushed pushed us, you know, to do our best and encourage us. And if you see that he suspects that it's coming from her own own upbringing. So that intergenerational capacity really playing out over time there. And then a lot of people that I spoke to were parents and some had become parents and they were quite young um, and interestingly, and I appreciate this might not be the case for everybody, but but for, for most of the people that I spoke to, that had been a very positive, ultimately, ultimately uh, a positive in terms of their education, you know, not necessarily straightforward, but very positive ultimately. So Grace then saying, if I didn't have her child, I would have never finished college, like I wouldn't have had any reason to stay. I suppose I felt that I needed to have something behind me because I was a mother now and I had to provide. And that sentiment um, was present in in the ways that a lot of people spoke about their, their sense of being a parent, but also the idea of just wanting to be a good role model and motivate their child and show them how wonderful education could could be, essentially. So I think that was a really powerful message to come out of the, the conversations. Then lastly, um, just to note that this idea that relationships beyond the family are supportive of education, and in many ways, a lot of this stuff is kind of intuitive and makes sense, but um, I always think it's useful to have evidence to kind of to back it up. So people here talking about friends and lecturers as being really important and pivotal, actually, um, in many ways to these people's stories. So Claire, who's 26, saying that her friend would be a massive encouragement and a massive help in the last four years while she completed her degree. And even in terms of my confidence and positive thinking. So it's not just about practical things, but about kind of, you know, being there, being that reminder that, you know, you can do it. And then Terry, who was 25 when I spoke to him, talking about a particular lecturer saying that the woman believes in me more than I've ever believed in myself, repeatedly telling me since the first day I've met her, I think she has been, um, yeah, the absolute catalyst. I loved the use of the word catalyst and I think it's really powerful. So just then to, I'm going to be done in about five minutes, I'd say, five or 10 minutes, so you're coming to the end. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, the next few findings, I don't, I'm not going to present quotes or anything to, to support them, there are more findings that I drew from the overall, when I looked at all of the, the findings that I had, these were kind of concluding findings, I suppose. And this one, I think, um, they're all important, obviously, but I really, I really like this one a lot. So the idea of disruption and developmental wobbles in educational progress being the norm, um, for for many people with care experience, and they were very. It was very visible. These these various things that had interrupted um, the educational pathways of the people that I spoke to, and arguably interrupted is the wrong word. It was just life happening, and education came took a took a back seat for a while, and then was returned to. You know, so the language around that is is something to think about. Um, But what I would suggest is, you know, that these should be considered a normative part of the developmental pathway of many people with care experience, as they so often are for young people who don't have care experience. You know, we think about things like gap years and taking time out and and, and I think we think about those in different ways um, for, for people who haven't been in care. Arguably, I'm always happy to be proven wrong on these things, but I think it's worth considering that, you know, this is the norm potentially and how do we plan for that how do we allow for that how do we nurture that you know because often when we have these wobbles i'm sure we can all relate to that point that you know that the things that we kind of do and that knock us off course can sometimes bring us back on course in a way that is much more um helpful and appropriate than than what we would have potentially been doing if we weren't knocked off course so food for thought and then my final finding um this idea that there's ongoing potential for new beginnings and opportunities in education and I think if you look at the pathways of the people that I spoke to the various points in their lives at which educational support was provided I think that's really apparent there's many routes into and through further and higher education I should have written there my apologies and um, and I think we know that in in many ways but I'm not sure that it's always um it's not necessarily we can't always facilitate it. I suppose for for um, people who've been in care, young people who've been in care, and the idea of narratives of potential. And this is um, this is a, a, a Robbieism. I don't know if I should use that phrase, but Robbie coined this term, this idea of narratives of potential. I should have his, his reference in there. I'm sorry about that. But the idea that narratives of potential are present present in the educational pathways of people with care experience, and I think you can see that again. That's to me that's very evident in the stories of the people that I spoke to. You know, that there was this potential that was returned to and and tapped into at various points in time, sometimes by the person themselves, sometimes by people around them, sometimes by circumstance. And that there's alternative ways of conceptualizing educational outcomes for people with care uh, experience. So not necessarily just as outcomes being finite endpoints, but that they're fluid, they're changing, they're dynamic and they're lived. You know, it's a lived experience being a human being and outcomes change from day to day. So thinking about how we conceptualize those outcomes. And I'm not saying that's easy, but I think it's something that maybe needs to be uh, teased out a little bit. So I'm going to just spend a few minutes talking about some implications of the study in terms of policy and practice, and then uh, just a few concluding thoughts, and then I'll be I'll be finished. So if you think back to the um, the point I made about the Irish context, and this is not unique to Ireland, but that aftercare provision can be extended up to the age of 23 if someone is in full time care and or full time education or accredited training. And I think that the data from or the, 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 yeah, the data from this study, and I'm aware that it's a small study, but it's a study nonetheless, and it's a study in the context of having very little information on this topic in Ireland. But policies in relation to the education of people with care experience arguably um, would be well placed to allow for and expect diversity in educational pathways. I think if you look at the group of people that I interviewed um, you know they had really done incredible things in terms of education and and there was still this diversity and, and this passage of time was necessary for many of them. And I think it's understandable to think, and this is documented, this is not new information that I'm sh- I'm kind of bestowing, but that those initial years after leaving care can, not always, but can be tricky years. And there can be a lot, lot of things to figure out and education isn't necessarily number one on the priori- priority list. Um, it is for some people, but it's not for others. And how can we kind of allow for that? Can we allow for that? And then the second point there ties very much into that. Um, is the fact that extensions and aftercare support are contingent on the pursuit of full-time education, notably the full-time, is that problematic? Um, I would suggest that it maybe needs to be looked at. Um, I think certainly based on what I have found, arguably it it is in some ways, but again this is kind of the first toe in the water on this topic and on this issue. Um, or one of the first toes in the water, I should say. But I think this, if nothing else, this study certainly poses the question, you know, is that working out, is that beneficial? Is, is that to the best of everybody? Does that do, do do its best by everybody, you know? And should we strive for aftercare policies that seek to support and nurture the pursuit of education in a more flexible way? Um, and I think that's an important question to consider as well. I would suggest that the answer is probably yes, but I realize that from a policy perspective, that is not necessarily an easy thing to do, but I think these are maybe tough questions that need to be put out into the ether. And again, following on from that, that aftercare policies that maybe allow for these developmental wobbles and anticipate and consider these as development developmental opportunities, which you know very often they are, not always, but very often, um, there's an opportunity, but there is usually an opportunity in there somewhere, you know. But that we can kind of allow for it, consider it, factor it in and and nurture it, you know, and and give give a young person the space that they maybe need to figure out what the opportunity was within that. Lofty goals, I know, but you know, <laughs> I figure if I don't put them out there, they won't go out there. And then lastly, just a couple of points. Um for for practice just to consider in terms of practice. So this idea that there is a continued capacity for new beginnings and change. and I think that's something that is very uh, intuitive and probably resonates for, for a lot of people. but I think having that constant reminder that there is these, this capacity and that sourcing people or spotting people along the way in a person's journey to support their education um, can be done across the life course and also might happen in unexpected might come from unexpected places or less expected places. Um, the second point there speaks to a point that I or one of my findings that I haven't shared here today, but it's related to the, the role of agency and young people's own agency in influencing their own educational pathway, which was a, a big theme within the study and one that I felt like I wouldn't be able to do justice to in the time that I had today. But I think it's, 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 a, it's worth noting the importance of being attuned to the impact of an individual person's actions, but also noting the constraining nature of the structural factors that they might be um, limited by you know so for example one of the young people i spoke to one of the adults that i spoke to um, this is not an unusual story i suppose but he w- had to leave his residential care home in his leaving search year and that had a knock on effect he wanted to do his exams and he wanted to do really well but he was you know wildly impacted by his living circumstances at that stage and moving into his own apartment and things and that was that was a tough one for him at the time And then lastly the importance of opening up spaces to engage people with care experience with potential key actors you know so and this is something that Robbie has written about as well you know the importance of um not necessarily they don't necessarily have to be education people but creating opportunities for people to meet and engage with and um gain support from um various potential key actors be they foster carers or sports coaches or, or anything like that so lastly um just a concluding comment here, that I think the study findings suggest that we do, if we could possibly think, we need to think a bit more flexibly in terms of the policies and the ways we think about educational outcomes. Um, When we're looking at the issue of the educational progress and attainment of people with care experience, I think this study really highlights the the need for flexibility and the need to kind of maybe look at what we're doing and how that fits with the the lived experience of um, people who have been in care. And that's just something to kind of think about, I suppose. And then, you know, we're very, um, I think lifelong learning is something that's talked about a lot um, in, you know, everyday life. And it's held up as a very positive endeavor and something we should strive for. And I would suggest that the findings of this study suggest that we would do well to consider the education of people with care experience from a lifelong and ongoing um, perspective. And I don't know if you can read that, but that's a quote from Michelangelo at 87. I'm still learning. So just lastly, then, I just really wanted to thank the 18 people who shared their stories and experiences with me so openly and honestly, um, you know, it was a real joy to to meet with them and speak with them and hear their stories. And the study literally would not have been possible without them. So just to say thank you to everybody for that. There are some references if anyone wants to... Um, read any of the journal articles or my entire PhD thesis, if someone's at a loose end for a day, uh, you can find them all here. Um, But also I think I'll just leave my email address up maybe there for a few minutes. So you can email me in relation to the study, but also as Robbie said at the beginning, email me in relation to getting added to the mailing list for future presentations like this. So that is me. I will stop talking, I'll hand back to Robbie for a moment.
0: Okay, Ivan. Thank you very much. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear.
0: Excellent. excellent. Always reassuring to be heard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Especially
0: when you're live with 65 <laughs> people or something like that. Listening, you know? I know.
1: No pressure. No pressure.
0: Exactly. So, thank you very much. I think that was a really uh, stimulating presentation. Lots of food for thought. And I know that we have some questions. So maybe I can go to the questions on, uh, and we welcome more, obviously. Uh, so the first one, I'm going to read out the questions uh, for the benefit of the audience and for you, of course, Ivan, to give you a chance. Yeah,
1: thanks. If <laughs> I can answer them.
0: <laughs> okay, so the first question, the comment from Neil Forsyth is that uh, this is a very interesting study, and he says, out of curiosity, what areas of study were pursued by those who went on to the mm. third level? Great question.
1: Hi, Neil. Thanks for the question. Um, so interestingly, a lot of people I spoke to were. Um, pursuing or hoping to pursue careers in the social care and social work field. Um, some people had gone into education, some had gone into uh, kind of marketing and business side of things, but there was a very definite uh, weighting towards social care and social work courses for sure, which I think is an interesting point in and of itself, but yes.
0: Okay, thanks Ivan. that's great. Uh, next question from Sarah Morrissey. Uh, hi Ivan. great presentation. I'm currently managing a learning centre for students, 12 to 16 year olds. 20% of the student group are young people in care are currently supported by social work. Did your study come across the aspect of control for the young people in care in terms of their attendance at school? And if so, was there any guidance on this, on how this could be supported?
1: Thanks, Sarah. So if I understand the question, this is where it would be really nice if, if I could like ask you some questions about your question in a way, but we're, we're in a webinar world. Um, I think you're wondering about whether people spoke about how, how much enforcement there was, maybe for want of a better word, around them actually being at school. And it, it certainly came up. There was a couple of people who spoke about periods when they didn't attend school. And to be totally honest, there wasn't much enforcement around that from now this is only the people I spoke to and I'm not suggesting that's necessarily the case everywhere or now or anything like that but for the people I spoke to who didn't attend mostly it went relatively uncommented un- on and one person in particular missed two full years of her secondary school year and nobody nobody noticed it so there was no guidance specifically coming out of that there were people who had experiences where you know there was a a teacher who was kind of saying, you know, if you don't come in, you have to come in, you just have to come in. Like, but it was very, it wasn't, it wasn't guidance. It was kind of one person, again, taking an interest in an initiative and encouraging someone, letting some, letting the person know that they were expected to be in school and they were believed in that they could be in school. So that's a bit of a wishy-washy answer, but I suppose in summary, it did come up. Mostly it was that people were kind of left to their own devices um, and no specific guidance, really. I mean, I got the sense that people would have appreciated if someone had have commented on it or had have kind of expressed an interest in the fact that they weren't there, you know? Um, So yeah, I'm sorry, that's not probably the news you were hoping to hear, (laughs) so my apologies.
0: OK, thanks, Ivan. Very uh, interesting uh, issue. Um, mm-hmm. The next question is again from Neil Forsyth and it's more in a, probably in the nature of a comment or an observation. And in some ways it speaks to that issue about the nature of the sample mm-hmm. and that there are uh, there's certainly a lot of evidence that there are different groupings within the care or former care population. So, Neil's mm-hmm. just drawing attention to that point. He's saying there is a prefer. this is a comment on existing policy or the logic of policy. Uh, there is a perverse incentive in existing policy that pushes young people towards education because of a significant financial reward. In other words, you, you qualify for certain financial and other support potentially. If you are in full time education or training, you've made that point yourself, Ivan, mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. Uh, this can lead, Neil's point is, this can lead to poor educational choices and poor outcomes if the young person is really driven completely by the money rather than by the educational choices or, or preferences or interests. Uh, and yeah. so he's saying again, care leavers are forced to make critical decisions about their lives that ignore their developmental needs. I think that speaks to your point about being more flexible about timing sorry yeah. I, won't, I don't want to cut across your answer
1: <laughs> no no you're totally right yeah that's what I was going to say I totally agree um Neil and I think that was very apparent your, your point is is well made and well taken you know I agree that it can lead to poor or rushed edu- rush choices and um and not necessarily the procedure of education for furthering your career or furthering you know life chances and all an interest and all that kind of thing but kind of because I need to keep service or I need to keep this the financial support I'll do this course and this course um and yeah I totally agree care leavers forced to make critical decisions about their lives that ignore their developmental needs but also maybe ignore you know their age and their experiences in that moment and prior to that moment um and the fact that it doesn't necessarily have to happen in that window of time I think that's something that we are very not necessarily very good so it's definitely a culture of like do secondary school do university but I think there's an allowance of returning to education and in the in the wider population maybe in a way that we don't necessarily allow for for people who are leaving care. So I, I agree. I don't have any profound insights, but I totally agree Neil. <laughs> Thanks
0: okay i'm just going to um, uh deal with a, a point that's raised which is relevant for the whole audience uh, i mean i know every question is relevant for the whole audience but this is a point of just uh, from eleanor sullivan she says hi Ivan. thank you for the great presentation with very interesting findings just curious will this be made public in the hope of maybe making some positive changes currently for people in care so i suppose that this is this 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 actual event but also maybe the the work you you you're doing to to promote the findings?
1: Yeah, thanks, Alan. Um, That's a super question. And yeah, I mean, so the link to this recording will be made publicly available, but I'm also, um, I, I in May, this is like desperate, it's November, but I have been putting together kind of a deep, a, a briefing summary on my PhD that is not the entire thesis because I think it's not realistic to think that people would read that. And the journal articles that are out there are out there, but they're in they're they're in journals that you know if you're connected to a university you can access them, but they're not always easy to access. But yeah, certainly my next step, the next step in terms of my plan is to finalise the summary uh, or the briefing on the study and share it, you know, with you know key stakeholders in the area. Um, I do I do think my study is like the first of of several studies that needs to be done on this area, and you know hopefully I can maybe Robbie maybe can do something on that, but I definitely want to make the findings available in an accessible way, but obviously then if people want to find out more, they can. So watch this space for the briefing summary. You're giving me a renewed reminder and uh, impetus to, f- to finish it, Ellen. So thank you for that.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Sivana. Okay, Mary Fahy, saying an excellent presentation. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> Eimer, uh, wrote saying uh, would it be beneficial to extend care to 21 as they have done in Australia and actually in, in other in other places in uh, many of the states in the US have done it and mm. some parts of the UK uh, so this is extending care to 21 where young people can remain in care voluntarily after 18 mm. where the law actually provides for that yeah so from aftercare it's more it's more uh, 100% support and um, and that this would also mean that young people would get uh, better financial assistance for educational support and so on and other support. So that, that, that's a really interesting point, Emer. Yeah.
1: You probably have thoughts on this as well, Robbie. I'd say I, I might dive in first because I think, Emer, that's yeah, it's such an interesting point. And as you say, Robbie, it's about extending care. And then uh, but by default, is there an extension to aftercare supports and things? And I think, I I think it would be very beneficial um, to do that and to explore it and to to try it out here. But I do think there's also something about, um, you know, some of the people I spoke to were in their early thirties before they went back to education, and I appreciate that there's other financial supports out there for returning to education for some people. But part of me thinks that, you know, if you've been a child who's been in care, you're a child of the state, and um, just this is the kind of stating the obvious again but once you turn 18 or 21 whichever the age you were still a child of, of the state so arguably you know extending care to 21 is a, is a brilliant starting point but you know what about financial and educational supports down the line the further further down the line you know if someone decides when they're 40 they want to go back into education and they have been in care and they are you know don't have any other means for doing it is there a, a role for the state to play in supporting that so but to answer your question I think it potentially would be very beneficial and I think yeah as you say Robbie it's happening in other jurisdictions outside of Australia as well. I'm not sure if if there's any research done on the impact of it, Mark Courtney has done a little bit, it does seem to be beneficial in terms of education in one sense does it Robbie, can you remember?
0: Uh, Yes, well, I mean, I think overall there are there are benefits. There's a paper which I've been involved with is just published um, with uh, look, which looks at progress on uh, implementing extended care and what the evidence is on its effects so far, uh, looking across 10, 10 countries. And uh, it's uh, if anyone wants to information about that paper, I'm happy to if they email me, I'll uh, Robbie at TCD.ie. I'll, I'll I'll send you a copy of the paper um so so the lisa lisa garavan uh, a nice message uh, and remembering that educational journeys proceed at different paces <laughs> uh, okay. lisa remembering that she was at the first children in care research forum at the beginning of her own phd and she's so impressed that you are now finished lisa, yeah, lisa you're passion. nearly
1: there i'm sure of it i'm sure you're there you get there
0: <laughs> so best of luck on that and thanks for uh, coming well, of course, you, you, Yvonne was a bit further down the road, I suppose, if she was already speaking at, at the, the event. So uh, in fairness to you, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so Danielle, Danielle Douglas uh, saying great presentations. Thanks so much, Yvonne. Just wondering if any of the participants comment, commented on how care experiences in, impacted on their learner identities in terms of self-confidence expectations, etc. Uh, a very interesting question.
1: Such a good question, Danielle. And hi, thanks for coming. You're such a star. Um, yeah, I mean, God, that that I feel like I could have a long conversation about that. It yes is the is the answer. It, it was commented on, not necessarily in those terms, I suppose. And I can think of a few examples, but one person in particular who had a very um sort of relatively difficult and, and reasonably chaotic first kind of seven or eight years of life and then moved into a foster home where before that point education had been discussed in very you know different terms if at all in the context in which she was living and then when she went into her foster home the expectations were huge and the school she went to you know within the school there was a huge uh culture of you know educational um the pursuit of education and academics and all that kind of thing, and she very much pointed to the fact that this was changed her perspective on education and pointed her in, in a direction that she otherwise would not have gone to. She always had this sense that she was quite an able person, but uh, I, th- thinking about that idea of learner identity, it's almost like the context lined up with her sense of herself, I suppose. So she was given the space and the expectation was very much within her foster family that like you'd go to school and then you go to university and that's what she did. Um, And that was true of a lot of people, but interestingly as well, it also had the opposite effect where people had very negative experiences in care in terms of their uh, lack of encouragement or kind of outright uh, discouragement, I suppose, in terms of education. and that had its own impact and I think interestingly for the people I spoke to they were ultimately able to turn that around as a motivation for education but I think that's a very dangerous thing to be thinking that that would that that is what happens always because obviously it can have quite the opposite effect and really stay with people so yes they did and you're making me think maybe there's something to write about this from this paper as well so um maybe we can chat about that Danielle I don't know but yeah it's a great question and it's probably one that will be stewing in my mind after this and I'll think of loads of things that I should have said but that one person I think kind of that example captures that in a way I think um that the experience of coming into care and specifically this foster home that she's she ended up staying in for a long time and that is now her family uh having that big impact anyway sorry I'm 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 waffling on Robbie sorry but thank you Daniel.
0: <laughs> okay well we're 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 we have some more questions so maybe we can try and aim for a shorter shorter answers. <laughs> I'll try <laughs> <laughs>
1: note yourself.
0: Um, Sharon Fogarty is saying, excellent presentation. Thanks, Ivana and Robbie. That's Deirdre true. McCormick saying, great presentation. Julie yeah. Cal saying, great presentation, Ivan. I have, con- I, I have uh, been concerned in practice that some of the most vulnerable young people have such a desire to break their connection to social work at 18, that they walk away from support without maybe fully understanding the implications of this, for example, losing financial and professional support. Did you find any evidence of this? I fully agree with your thoughts about the need to allow developmental breaks
1: yeah okay I'm gonna try and give a short answer here uh, Julie because I'm just so, so yes is the answer and it's interesting because two two people are coming to mind who uh, spoke about this about like you know having no interest in engaging with aftercare sports and and really has been like what is that I don't even want to know it's another person in my life but actually both of those people's foster carers were were kind of rigid on it and and made them meet with an aftercare worker and ultimately that they were like oh this is actually really helpful so I mean that was the role of the foster carer in kind of navigating that with them but certainly for a couple of people there was a I, I just want nothing to do with this anymore the sooner I can get away from it the better and then realizing the implications of that after the fact sometimes one person one person realized the implications of it just before she could cut could con- could contact and, and got back on the bus, as you would say, Robbie. Um, but yeah, a really interesting question, Julie. Thank you. And another one I'll probably think about after this. Sorry, that was too long of an answer,
0: Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 it was shorter. <laughs> Alan, Alan uh, Hayes saying, thanks, Savannah. I'm looking forward to reading more about your study. Were there any findings or recommendations regarding what specific supports would have been beneficial to children with care experience when identifying their direction of study? So it's kind of, I think, a kind of a career guidance issue. Yeah, that kind yeah. kind of the right kind of career guidance, if I understand the question.
1: Yeah, that's a brilliant question, Alan. No, it's not something that I actually looked at specifically, but certainly um, some people had very helpful people in their lives guiding them some people didn't and kind of fell into a course on social care social work often just felt like the one that they knew for a lot of for, for not, not a lot of people for, for some people so no but something to go back and look at my data for because that is a really interesting point um and something myself and Robbie have, I think the releasing potential series kind of speaks to that a little bit Robbie as well but thank you Ellen I'll go back and and look at that if you want to email me with anything any other questions you can
0: A question from Jonathan Linklater, who identifies himself as a speech and language therapist. Thanks, Saban. Great to hear the different perspectives. Did any of the participants reflect on barriers or difficulties they experienced, such as the lack around access to services such as speech and language, occupational therapy, educational psychology support?
1: Mm, Amazing question. Thanks, Jonathan. I feel like I have probably met you at a previous research forum, Jonathan. Uh, A really quick answer to that is that comes to mind is, a lot of people I spoke to were uh, diagnosed with dyslexia. Some people had that diagnosis made very early, some people were actually in college uh, before the diagnosis was made and that as you can imagine had various impacts in their um, educational pathways or journeys over time and so I'm not necessarily speaking to the barrier in terms of engaging with the service but more noting that there was a reason to be engaged with services and sometimes that didn't happen until quite later which presented as its, as its own barrier. I hope that makes sense and is a is a reasonable response.
0: Um, very good thank you. Uh, Danielle coming back again so interesting your response to her earlier point thanks for answering so clearly yeah. well done for inspiring those of us who are close to finishing.
1: Can't wait to, <laughs> to hear when you finish Danielle.
0: Good luck Danielle. Uh, Ellen O'Sullivan back in it saying, through your research after meeting so many care leaves, do you think there, if there was any, w- w- there was more psychological supports mm-hmm. for young people that it would transition better for their uh, they would make, you know, make better progress uh, educationally?
1: Ellen, that's such a good question. Um, and kind of probably tied into the, to Jonathan's question in one sense, I suppose, that in terms of the very practical realities of diagnosing if there is a learning uh difficulty there and getting appropriate support for that i think that certainly would would be very valuable and i suppose psychological sports can also i suppose be kind of in a therapeutic sense and i don't know i think that that would be if that was offered and i know that is offered in many contexts that could potentially impact on education progression but again i suppose that idea that maybe it, it being available in a more open way that people don't necessarily have to engage with it in you know X window, but that it's an option to go back to. I think like education, there's something about the timing of that kind of um, endeavour and seeking that kind of support that needs to be a little bit flexible as well. But I think ultimately, I I imagine that that would make a a big difference to a lot of people, not, not to everybody, but to a lot of people. Thanks, Alan.
0: Um, and i just maybe add a comment that I think when when we look at uh, the Irish approach uh, to education, lifelong education, it, I'd have to say it compares pretty favorably with uh, what I hear is happening in some other countries. So our system tends to be more, fle- is becoming more flexible and welcoming and facilitative of people getting back on the education buses, I like to say. <laughs> um so yeah no, but it is a very important point about are we providing the right kinds of formal supports but of course you also in your study i think Ivan identified how important informal support is you know that it, yeah. a very a, a wide range of people can play an important part and they're not all people with, with jobs with with education in the title or even formal <laughs> jobs they they may be you know people who are Friends, or or you know, they're not play, playing a formal role in the person's life, and yet they had a big part in the story. Exactly. Uh, Su- 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 Susan Flynn, thanking Ivan. I've learned so much. Thanks, Susan, Thanks, a friend colleague of ours in the school of social work and social policy. Rainer Buckley saying, "Great presentation, Ivan." Rainer. and Shen saying uh you, you can share great presentation very thought-provoking thank you Ivana robbie the COVID crisis we've experienced could potentially be a significant wobble for the school age generation now especially the ones receiving or having received care i'd love to know how your participant participant group views the wobbles they've lived on, lived through, or are still sort of carrying along with them that's a, a really interesting point. Do yeah. they take, it to some extent, as kind of edu- educational for their self-growth as well? Do they? Do they? Are there positives in some of the difficult experiences? I think is behind that point, which is a really interesting idea. How did these wobbles influence their choice of going or not going back to an educational institution for school education? Maybe you've covered a lot of these points in your publication. <laughs> <laughs> Says she'll go back. She'll go back and read them first, grinning. <laughs>
1: Amazing I think yeah I, I think actually the paper on agency I think speaks to a, a fair bit of those those questions you can because I think you're right they were very often opportunities for for growth that were not necessarily apparent in the moment but you know with the passage of time you could see how um the opportunity that was inherited within a, a difficulty came to life but also sometimes things were just difficult and they were difficult and that was that um so, yeah, I would say maybe have a look at the paper on agency if you're if you're able to. If, and if you can't access it, email me. And then uh, I think that will answer some of those those questions. Sorry, I'm trying to do short answers.
0: <laughs> OK, well done. Ivan. Well done. Thanks, uh, so this is the, the last the last comment. Uh, Janice Ryan, fantastic okay. presentation. Having worked with young people in special care for 14 years. I love to see I'm lo- I love seeing young people gain an educational mm. uh, ad- Achievement uh, and positive growth in life. So, yes, I think that's a great note on which to end.
1: Perfect note to end on. Thanks, Janice.
0: Okay, well, look, uh, well done to everyone. Uh, well done to Ivan, particularly, for a great presentation and Thank for you. such clear and uh, full answers to the questions. <laughs> 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 uh, um, I'm going to just remind you all about the email if you want to be included in the invitations to the next event, which we ex- fully expect to be online. Bearing, how things, bearing in mind how things are, we do hope to get back to physical meeting at some point. Uh, so it's Brady E B R A D Y E at T C D I E.
1: Sorry, Robbie, it's Brady E three.
0: Just oh, to, yeah,
1: no, no, you're okay. Brady E3, the number three at tcd.ie. Oh, <laughs> well, if you even just Google Ivan Brady TCD, you'll find me. So, so the one thing you should not do me.
0: is give out the wrong email. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know who has Brady E at tcd.ie. Sorry, well, well, yeah, I hope they
0: don't get too many queries.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sure Brady they E3, yeah, yeah, at tcd.ie. Thanks, Robbie.
0: Okay. And there was a hand up from somebody there. Uh, oh. Deirdre McCormack, was it? Uh, am I right?
1: Yes, but uh, I don't know how to. Oh,
0: that's gone. Any, sorry, that's it came up uh, on the screen, but I can't tr- trace it right now. My tricks, my oh there, maybe. Uh, so the last um, comment is Jonathan Linklater. Thanks, Ivan. That answer uh, tied in especially retiming to access. And yes, we meet. We met at the Children Care Forum before. Thanks to Robbie for facilitating to, too. To. Okay, well, listen, folks, uh, we we, we uh, try to stay on time, uh, try and do it within an hour. I think it's a good format to, 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 to give people a, a one hour, an intensive one-hour uh, opportunity, kind of uh, a deep dive into an issue like this, which I think has been very, very stimulating and hopefully uh, uh, encourages people to go off and think about the ways in which... Education and care can, can align better and open up opportunities for people when they're ready, when they're ready, not when the system is ready, but when they're ready. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Thank
1: Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Maeve.
0: Thank you, Maeve.
1: Bye, <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Everyone.
0: Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.